Let's read the Word of God together. This is what Scripture says, beginning in verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and to the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word would be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, even if a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Let's pray one more time. Oh, Father, we ask your blessing now on our time. We pray that as your word goes out, Lord, that it would have prophetic significance for our lives, that it would impact our hearts, that you would speak to each individual life that is represented here. Be the lifter of our head, O oh God. We pray that you would encourage us as we sit under the means of grace, which is your word preached. We ask, God, that you would be blessed and that you would be pleased to visit us now and to give us your spirit with great abundance. Help us to discern the meaning of your word and help us to apply it and allow the significance of the word to have a, a serious impact on us as we live our daily lives. We pray to you, Lord God, we, we cry out to you, Father. We, we acknowledge our dependency. We recognize who is sufficient for these things. Not us. Not us, O oh Lord. And so, Father, we cry out, help us, be with us, strengthen us, give us ears to hear, do your work among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we have come to a portion of the book of Hebrews that many scholars have considered the climax of the letter. Uh, this is really uh, a portion of Scripture that is just monumental. Not just in the book of Hebrews, brothers and sisters, but for the entirety of the Word of God. For the whole book of God. This passage is seminal. It is so important that we spend our time here and take our time. And for that reason, I'm really going to take a two-part approach to this text. And I'm happy to do that. What I want to look at is the supremacy of the new covenant as we go from Sinai to Zion. I mean, that's really what you can title this sermon is from Sinai to Zion. That is where we're going. So I wasn't surprised to hear in the reading of our Psalms today a reference to Zion Really pivotal, really remarkable. But I want to begin by just pointing out what the author says here in the negative in verse 18. He says, you have not come to, to a mountain that can be touched and to blazing fire. Now, obviously, when he's speaking of coming to a mountain, it should immediately provoke images of our mind of the people of God there fresh off the exodus, being gathered together in a formal theocracy at the foot of Mount Sinai. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is, you have not come back to that place. In other words, this is not just simply another sequence in the plan of redemption. This is not another round of the church in the wilderness going back and forth, back and forth aimlessly because of sin and unbelief. No, 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 no. We have not come to that mountain. Remember, Sinai is really sort of just sort of symbolic of the whole Exodus event. And really, the people, the people, the people. If you look at the theology of Hebrews, you understand that Hebrews is constantly connecting us back to the wilderness generation. For example, look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, because this is the generation that is thought about right here in verse 18. And what he's saying is, this is not you. This is not what you have come back to. 
Hebrews 3, 7, 7 says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, now I want you to make that note in your mind, that in the, in the mind of the author of Scripture, when Scripture speaks, the Spirit is speaking. Did you notice that? As the Spirit says, but this is a quote from Psalm 95, he didn't say as the psalmist says. He says, as the Spirit says, and then he proceeds to read Scripture to us. Isn't that great? Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me. They saw my works for 40 years. They saw His works for 40 years. They saw miracle after miracle. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. And they did not come to know, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And the author of Hebrews is saying, you are a different generation than this. You have not come back to the wilderness experience. You have not come back to the economy of the old covenant. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, to blazing fire, to darkness and gloom, and a whirlwind. This is amazing amazing language. Now, I have several points. Before I make those points, let me just send out a caveat, okay? Because one thing that this is not saying is it's not saying, as we think about the language here in Hebrews 12, that of a blazing fire, that of darkness, that of gloom, that of, you know, the blast of the trumpet, the sound of words, Moses fearing and trembling, a mountain so holy that even if an animal touches it, it dies. And you would think, well, that is because of the holiness of God. And so is the author of Hebrews saying, we have not come to the holiness of God. That is not at all what he is saying. As a matter of fact, Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. The progression from old to new is not at all some sort of diminishing of the glory and the holiness of God. If anything, brothers and sisters, if anything, it is an escalation. Look at Hebrews 2 because what he's saying almost is because there is substantially more revelation, new covenant disobedience incurs what? Double accountability to God. Beginning in verse 1, Hebrews 2 says, For this reason we, that's a new generation. It's not the wilderness generation. That is the new covenant generation. We must play, pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable. What is that talking about? Because angels were mediators. They were, they, were, they were agents at the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And so what he's saying is that that angelic activity, that angelic event of the giving of the law and the forging of, a new, of, an old, of the old covenant, he says, if that word if what was, which was spoken proved unalterable, meaning it was uncompromising, it was unrelenting, the standard was Never going to come down. If that received, if, if every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, here is the emotional expression. How will we escape? You see that? How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? I tell you, under the old covenant, people were accountable. Under the new covenant, they're double accountable. Because the Old Covenant was largely typological in nature, symbolic, even as we're going to focus on today. But under the New Covenant, we have incarnate revelation. The Son of God comes not hidden in the the smoke of a thick cloud of darkness and gloom. He comes in flesh. He comes to us in His own body. And his own incarnation. Therefore, we, how will we escape? 
Evangelistically speaking, what that means is if you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are twice as accountable as the people under the Old Covenant who saw miraculous epiphanic manifestations of God from a mountain thundering and quaking and lightning and the whirlwind. You are twice as accountable because of your knowledge of Jesus Christ, His person, and His work. Brothers and sisters, what this text is giving us is two things, ultimately. Number one, the unapproachable holiness of Sinai. Number two, the unspeakable blessings of Zion. Right now, we're going to look at the unapproachable holiness of Sinai because I don't want to hastily rush over this language as if this is somehow non-important. We just need to hurry up and get to Sinai. I want to remind us of the holiness that was embedded in the Old Covenant and what that signifies for us. What it signifies for us. I'm going to point out three things about Sinai that I think will be helpful for us. Number one, I'm going to point out its symbolic character, its sacred character, and its salvific character. Number one, Sinai reminds us of the typological character of redemptive history. There's a real sense in which, brothers and sisters, that when you flip to your Old Testament, no matter where you land, something symbolic is there. Typology is all over the Old Testament because we can say in one sense the entire Old Testament economy is typological. There's typological force to it. So I'm going to use that word a lot. Typological. Symbolic. Almost synonymous terms. Because that is what Sinai was. It's just a graphic picture. It's a graphic picture of what transpired there in Sinai, that a people were gathered around the absolute holiness and transcendence of God. And it reminds us that the people of God were incapable of approaching. What went on at Sinai was the display of God enthroned. His wrathful storm chariot, His wrath, His vengeance appearing in a blazing fire and darkness and gloom in whirlwind. See, what's going on is that the the author of Scripture and really God, as He condescends to the people, He's giving them nature metaphors to understand something of the greatness and the power of His wrath and the purity, we can say, the blazing purity of His holiness. We should do that today. Whenever we see on the news... Category 5 hurricane blasting through wherever. When we think of the, of the, of the, 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 the wind and the storm of a tornado. I'll never forget being at Joplin, Missouri. We, we went there. Juan and I went there and we went with another friend. And, uh, the devastation from the Joplin tornado, uh, it was a EF5 tornado. It was so powerful it pulled up the grass off the ground rolled it up, peeled it off the ground. It was so fierce. People hid under their basements and the tornado literally ripped the foundation off the, 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 the foundation of the house, ripped it off and exposed the basement. There was nowhere to hide from the fury of that wind. And that, that whirlwind is just a small token, brothers and sisters, of the fury of God's whirlwind. There you are. You're at the foot of the mountain. The mountain is quaking. You're hearing lightning and thunder and there's thick clouds. Can you imagine how much fear? Where even the covenant servant, Moses, who had the privilege of going and meeting God, was overwhelmed with fear and trembling. And brothers and sisters, listen, fear and trembling, that may be a phrase that we throw around, but we're talking about Moses actually physically, visibly shaking. Because God is so holy and he's about to encounter this holy God that he's near an epileptic fit. That's what we're talking about. That's why Jonathan Edwards is famous for telling sinners, you cannot bear hell among devils. You don't know what you're doing by playing with the wrath of God. You will not be able to endure. Who can stand on that day if not for the work 
of the Savior. They came, they heard the blast of a trumpet, the sound of words. That's language of the, the, the trumpet and the sound of words. Oftentimes the trumpet and, and the voice of God are, are, are sort of attributed to God's, uh, his, the Lord, the, the, the day of the Lord language where God is literally coming in judgment. We saw that very early in our study of Genesis where I believe Genesis chapter 2, or excuse me, Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall, it says they heard the sound of the Lord in the garden. And they were afraid of His... They heard the sound of Him and they were afraid. They heard... And the word there is ruach, wind. They heard the wind. In other words, they heard God coming in judgment. And here, the children of Israel saw the holiness of God, the wrath of God that could break in upon them. What's interesting about all of this is that we're giving, we're, we're being given a type, not just simply of the wrath of God, but we're giving a symbol in Sinai of an eternal reality, a heavenly reality. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8 very quick. So I want to just point out something that happens in Hebrews over and over and over, and that is the fact that the author of Hebrews often touches heaven and earth. There's a heaven-earth dualism in the book of Hebrews that is concurrent. It happens in significant intervals in the book of Hebrews when he wants to get across something really, really important. It is, Sinai is just a shadow of things to come. It shows us the typological character of Sinai, that Sinai was just a picture. It was just a symbol. It was just a portrait of something greater. And in Hebrews chapter 8, the same thing happens with the tabernacle. It's just a symbol. It's just a type. It says in verse 1, Now the main point of this that has been said is that we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary, watch this, and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. The earthly tabernacle was just a picture, a portrait of the economy of heaven. That's all it was. Sinai is consistent with that dualism. And in chapter 12, verse 26, that carries on from he who is speaking on earth to the one who speaks from heaven. What's going on here with Sinai and Zion is that heaven and earth are being contrasted. Heaven and earth, they speak of two different realms, two different economies of God. One represents His earthly economy his earthly people, the other one, obviously, the heavenly. You know, it's amazing that Sinai functions in this way because there's another typological character to Sinai. I would say that Sinai functions as something of a vertical tabernacle. It's as if somebody took the tabernacle and flipped it on its head. Think of the tabernacle stood up with the Holy of Holies at the very top. I think that's what's going on with Sinai. Sinai was a picture of the unapproachable holiness of God's presence. G.K. Beale says, The majority of the Israelites were to remain at the foot of the mount, Mount Sinai. The priests and the elders were allowed to go a bit further, a, a, a bit, a, some distance up the mountain. But only Moses could ascend to the top and directly experience the presence of God. He says Sinai has three sections with increasing sanctity. Sinai is a picture of the temple. It is a picture of God's sanctuary presence that is absolutely unapproachable. And doesn't that fit exactly well with the book of Hebrews? That's what Hebrews is all about. Hebrews is all about entering in, going beyond the veil. Sinai was a very primitive picture of that. It shouldn't surprise us because in the Bible, you find instance after instance after instance where the mountain of the Lord is equated with the sanctuary or with the temple of God. Picture after picture of this. But I think the question that we should ask is, what did all this symbolize? Well, it symbolized that God is holy. That's really what it is. What is the typology? You ready for the typology of the entire Old Testament in one phrase? Okay, sentence, maybe paragraph. 
Take the entire Old Testament. That's quite a challenge. That's a lot, right? What is the entire Old Testament typology about? This is what it's about. Heaven. The reason why God picked a people out of Egypt and sanctified them to himself and brought them out into the wilderness and then eventually gave them access to where? To the promised land, right? That whole progression is a perfect picture of the eschaton. That is exactly the way that our lives are moving, brothers and sisters. We have been delivered out of bondage. God has sanctified us and purified us because He wants a holy people. And He is taking us into the promised land, Canaan, which is the heavenly Jerusalem, because He wants to dwell with us in a holy realm. Fascinating. Sinai, secondly, Not only does Sinai remind us of the typological character of redemptive history as a whole, we can spend all day on that. But secondly, Sinai reminds us of the absolute holiness of God. And this is really what I want to talk about now, is that what this symbolizes is how unapproachable God is. Paul says to Timothy, God dwells in unapproachable light. I thought this just has massive implications for evangelism. Massive implications for evangelism. To know that God is so holy. You know, it says here that God covered Himself in darkness and gloom. Where is He pulling all of this from? Well, in verse 20, it says, Even if a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. Well, that comes directly out of Exodus chapter 19. And I want you to go there with me. Exodus 19, verse 10, beginning there. Verse 9 is is uh, important as well because in verse 9, God tells Moses he's going to appear to him in a thick cloud. You know what's going on there when God is appearing as a thick cloud? He's concealing himself so that his full glory will not be seen. That's true, but brothers and sisters, let me say this. God is also graciously, graciously shielding the people. If God were not to come in a thick cloud and darkness and gloom and conceal His glory, of course He would consume the people and break forth. He he often tells that to Moses, that He was going to break forth and consume the people. He would come out of His cloud and come directly to them in His presence and consume them. It was an amazing, holy, glorious disclosure. Now, what this holiness called for was exhaustive consecration. Look at verse 10. The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. So this is before Leviticus, right? So this is before the Levitical law and the ceremonial law had been given in exhaustive detail, but all of a sudden you have God already calling for ceremonial cleansing. This is another reason why I think Sinai functions as a primitive temple, a primitive tabernacle, because there are already rituals and ceremonies attached to it. He says, And let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down out of Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up to the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. It says, no hand shall touch him. Not even the person put to death was to be touched. But he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When we, it says, when the ram's horn sound, uh, sounds and long, a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. They shall approach at the appropriate time. So Moses went down for the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. So not only was there to be ceremonial cleansing, there was also to be sexual cleansing, sexual uh, um, uh, purification. So that it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were no thunder, no excuse me, that there was thunder and lightning flashes and thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Everybody trembled. And Moses 
brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. This is where the author of Hebrews is returning us to this. Isn't this great? Isn't this amazing? Isn't this a, this, isn't this a cataclysmic picture? I mean, picture yourself there. Now, we have some lightning storms in Texas, don't we? I've often thought, there's a, there's a school down the street from my house and sometimes we'll, I'll take my dog and she just runs free out there. It's just glorious. And we just run around out there. Well, she runs, I walk, but you know what I mean. And I've often thought in these terrible lightning storms that we have here, I wonder if I could make it across the field. <laughs> I know that sounds kind of crazy, but it sounds kind of fun too. I won't try it, but I'm just saying, I wonder if I can run across that field without getting struck by lightning in the process. <laughs> if I don't show up next, you know, after a storm, you know what happened to me, right? So imagine being exposed out there. Imagine being thrusted out there in that storm. Now, you're safe because you're in your house, right? You know nothing's going to happen to you in your home. Well, maybe, right? But you know that from a safe vantage point, you can look at that same terrifying storm and you can actually enjoy it. You ever done that? Jonathan Edwards talks about how that prior to being... Uh, converted, uh, lightning storms would scare him to death and he would fear God's judgment. But he said after he was converted, he would get a chair and he would position it in the window and he would watch the lightning and he would marvel. You see, what happens in the new covenant is that God is pulling us up a chair He is situating us next to the window so we can enjoy the holiness and the glory of God and not be consumed by it. There is nothing wrong with the holiness of God from Sinai. There is nothing wrong with God being so holy, so pure, so glorious that even if an animal that is unclean and unpermitted to go in were to touch the mountain, it should drop dead and everybody else should drop dead in the process. There is nothing wrong with that holiness. That would be like taking a a, a single engine Cessna and flying to the surface of the sun and then you blame the sun when you're incinerated. It is the nature of the sun to incinerate the plane. It is the holy nature of God to incinerate the sinner. And the mountain, because it represented the very presence of God, was so terrifying that the people had to put on symbol, had to wash themselves in a, in a, in an act of symbolism to go in. Even the mediator, Moses, who was allowed to go up. Even he feared and he trembled. What I'm trying to suggest to us is that the same fear, the same trembling, the same awe and reverence that they had in the sight of that epiphany, that theophany, we should maintain that fear today. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Just scoot down a little bit there. Verse 28. Because I think... The same reverential fear should carry over today in our own worship, in our own service to the Lord. Through Sinai and the Old Covenant, God prepares His people for His holy law. But in Zion, God prepares His people for His holy Son. And that should not minimize or diminish the holiness and the reverence that we have as we worship and serve Him. Look at verse 28. Therefore, since we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken... Let us show gratitude by which we offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God, we could say, remains a consuming fire. Just because we are in the new covenant, that does not at all mean that God's holiness has diminished somehow. No, what has changed is our access. We have access to the place where once we were never, ever allowed to go. Therefore, we can now, by His grace, for His glory, come boldly. But this reminds us of one last thing. 
Not, not only does Sinai remind us of the typology, Sinai reminds us of the utter holiness of God, but it also reminds us of our need for redemption. That is very clear. And this begins with a need for a new mediator. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40 is the end. It is the end of the book of Exodus. And what is remarkable about that is that once again we encounter the absolute holiness of God. But I want to point something out about Moses here as we go to Exodus chapter 40. You see, you understand the holiness of God was supposed to sojourn with the people. It was to demarcate them. It was to, it was to dignify them. The holiness of God was to journey with them wherever they went. They were to be characterized by the holiness of God. And, and now, and now that the tabernacle has been built, and the glory of God is, is, is gonna fill the tabernacle, no longer, a, no longer the mountain, but now the tabernacle. The people of God would finally have a meeting place. Sometimes the tabernacle is called the meeting tent, the tent of meeting, right? Because they would meet God there. But what happens? What happens is that as the tabernacle is complete, Moses is, even though he is the mediator of the covenant, is incapable of entering in with boldness into God's presence. Look at what it says. I suppose we can begin reading in verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Don't you see the glory of God? The holiness of God made it impossible for someone even like Moses, who was the very mediator of the people of God. He could not even enter. He was prohibited. He was like the, he was like the priest in 1 Kings 8 that fell down at the glory of God. They weren't even able to minister anymore. It would be like me coming up here on this, on this, in this pulpit and the glory manifests itself out here so that I'm not even able to preach. I can't even stand to the pulpit. The glory of God is so unapproachable. And yet, even though that mediator could not approach, you know where I'm going with this. We have a mediator that can approach And that can make us able to approach. Who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who can enter into the holy place? Psalm 24. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And we might be tempted to say, well, there goes me. Clean hands, pure heart? Not really. I would say, that's right. We're all in that place. Clean, clean hands, pure heart, none of us are without that. Or w- with that. None of us are without sin. We need someone who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and who has not sworn deceitfully. Isaiah 53, verse 9. There was no deceit in his mouth. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 22. When he was persecuted and reviled, no deceit was found in his mouth. Jesus Christ is uniquely qualified to ascend the hill of the Lord, to tread where Moses could not. To have access into that place that should elicit fear and that place that without which the cloud and without which the darkness and the gloom, we would all drop dead. But Jesus, because as the book of Hebrews says, He has no sin. He is innocent and separate from sinners. He is tempted in every way that you're tempted. Every way that you are tempted without sin. Think about that. I just think of Jesus being such a man. A man's man. Because He was approached with the same temptations, but He stood His moral ground to the death. 
Something you and I are incapable of doing. And therefore, Jesus gives us the garments that were just typological in Moses' day. He gives us the garments of His righteousness. So that we too can ascend up the hill, not because of your clean hands, brothers and sisters, but because of His. Not because of the purity of your heart, but because of His sinless nature. Think of it. I hope that Jesus becomes increasingly precious to you as you think about not only how fit He is, but how unfit we are. Sometimes I think we struggle to put categories of the book of Hebrews because we're so used to Pauline thought. I think sometimes we struggle to appreciate what Hebrews is really teaching because we're so used to the justification language of forensic theology of the Apostle Paul that sometimes we struggle because Hebrews comes to us from a covenantal, a ceremonial angle. But brothers and sisters, let me assure you that Hebrews and Paul speak the same language. They are referring to the same redemptive realities, but from a different perspective. This is why Hebrews is so significant, because it rounds off the covenantal righteousness that we need in order to be friends of God. Philippians chapter 3 is exactly what Hebrews is going to be talking about as we just keep going through this exposition. Hebrews 3.9, it says, That I may be found in Him. Will you be found in Him? Is He going to be your identity on that day? Is He your all? Are you living on the basis of His merit that you may be found in Him devoid of your own works? He says, not having righteousness of my own Oh, and be, but before we're in Him, what are we doing? We are trying to impress God and each other with our own good works. I've done this. I do that. Or I don't do this. I don't do that. I've been pretty good. I've grown up in a Christian home. I was homeschooled. I went to a Christian school. I, I, you know, I appreciate all perspectives. I don't try to harm anybody or hurt anybody. And what the Bible is telling us emphatically and unequivocally is that that is simply not enough. It's not that you need the absence of your sins. That's one thing. You need the positive righteousness of Christ. You need not just neutral garments, but you need righteous garments. You don't just need to be a clean slate in the eyes of God, you need to be a morally a morally righteous person in the sight of God. But where are you going to get that righteousness? If it doesn't come from the works of the law, it says it comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And that's what Hebrews is all about. Faith in Him who makes us righteous. Faith in Him who makes us clean. Faith in Him who gives us access. Turn with me to chapter 10 of Hebrews. I want to remind you that the unapproachable holiness of Sinai reminds us that the typology is functioning in a redemptive fashion, pointing us to the safety and the security of Jesus Christ who on the basis of His blood has made it possible for us to approach the holiness of God. Beginning in verse 19, Hebrews 10, it says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is His flesh, and since we have a great Great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart, full in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What did Moses have to do to the people? He had to consecrate them. What did he have to do to the people? He had to wash them. What did Jesus do for us? He consecrates us. What did he do to our souls? He washed us. 
He took away our stains. He took away our evil conscience so that we can be ceremonially clean before our covenant God. The new covenant is not just a comparison. It's a contrast. It's not just putting them side by side. It's putting the one over the other. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Because we love Pauline theology, Paul will be our interpreter. Paul is going to interpret Scripture for us. He's going to remind us that what we're being given here in Hebrews is not just, oh, another covenantal economy. No. We have come to the superiority and the supremacy of the new covenant. Look at um, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. There, the old covenant, which is the focal point, is Sinai. There, it is called the ministry of death. Did you see that? He says, if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones, that's a reference to the law, the Ten Commandments. Why is it called the ministry of death? Because one of the uses of the law is that the law puts you to death. You die under the law. The, the law does not give you justification. The, the law gives you not the imputed righteousness of Christ. The law gives you the imputed guilt of, of Adam, in a sense. Well, it, it magnifies it, it exposes it. Hebrews or Romans would even say that it increases it. The guilt, the sin. That's why it's a ministry of death. If that ministry came with glory, oh, and we're looking at that glory right here in Hebrews. It came with glory. What's the glory? Well, the glory was the majesty of God's work, the majesty of His deeds, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of His face fading as it was. So how is the ministry of death glorious? It's glorious because when Moses encountered God under the Old Covenant, His face, and when He was given the law, His face emanated. It literally glowed. He had the mo glow. He was glowing. But guess what? Paul is saying that glow was fading. It was fading, brothers and sisters, because it was only temporary. It was fading because it is not that permanent abiding glory that God wants to reveal through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's why he says in verse 8, How will the ministry of the Spirit, which is the new covenant, fail to be even more with glory? Even more with glory. Notice the new covenant is called the ministry of the Spirit. Therefore, at Pentecost, some would say, at the day of Pentecost, we are seeing the antitype of Sinai. Because what happened at Sinai happened probably on the day of Pentecost. And they, they ended up commemorating it at that time. And so what happened at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 is not that God came down with a law, but He came upon with the Spirit. And He unleashed not new institutions. He didn't give them instructions for how to build a new building. He gave them the Spirit And He gave them tongues of fire so that they can proclaim the Word of the Lord. They were the temple. They were the building that God was building. That ministry, the ministry of the Spirit, will not fail to be with even more glory. That's what I mean by supremacy. Superior. For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory, that's the old covenant, in this case, watch this, in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. But you would say, what could be more glorious than we're talking about lightning and clouds and flashes and whirlwind and theophany? What can be more glorious than that? And what can be more glorious than God thundering with His voice? You know what's more glorious than that? Hebrews chapter 1. In God spoke long ago 
to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, but in these last days has spoken in His Son. That's more glorious. It's more glorious because He is, as it says, the radiance of God's glory. Isn't that remarkable? That that glory that we're talking about, that heavenly glory that intruded upon the mountain at Sinai, that heavenly glory that came down and broke into time and space and manifested itself in a miracle of Sinai, so much so that the people were terrified of it, that glory is supremely found in the person of Jesus Christ. Not in a mountain with smoke, not in a whirlwind, not in a storm, not in the power of a hurricane. Where is the power and glory and holiness of God? Where is it found? It's found in the person Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And that's why it says in John chapter 1, we beheld His glory. He came to tabernacle among us. And now... As amazing as the old covenant glory is, it has been surpassed. Just in keeping with the book of Hebrews, we are told explicitly that the first covenant has been set aside. Hebrews 8.13 When he says a new covenant, that's referring to the prophet Jeremiah, he has made the first one obsolete. Have you ever heard people ask, you believe in the Bible, do you eat shellfish? Do you mix your fabrics? You know what I usually say? Yeah, I eat bacon too. I know exactly where they're going. They're saying, don't you keep the law like Leviticus says? And what they're not understanding is that the glory of that covenantal administration was loaded with positive law. And positive law is a temporary installment of a ceremonial or civil law that has been retracted by God once the fulfillment of that law comes and takes its place with greater glory. The law of Christ, to put it in Pauline terms. Where do we go from here, brothers and sisters? I ask that in two ways because I don't even know how to finish this sermon other than to remind us of something I've already reminded us about and I want it to hit us like a ton of bricks that what God has done in Jesus Christ is that He has made us His friends. If Sinai is, like the tabernacle, a picture of God dwelling with His people, as one theologian said, it is a symbol of the friendship of God. Why? Because God condescended to come down and dwell among us. Because God condescended, just like He did with Abraham, who was a tent dweller. Isn't that amazing? It still boggles my mind that God would come down and pitch a tent. Why doesn't He come down and pitch an elaborate palace? Why doesn't He come down and pitch a a metropolis? A city made of crystal and gold and, and everything else. Why didn't He, why did He say, make some curtains, bring some sticks, put a little gate around this tent that I'm gonna make for us to meet in? You know why? Because culturally speaking, for God, to pitch a tent and invite you in is the greatest symbol of friendship that ancient Near Eastern people could have ever imagined. God is willing to pitch a tent. He's taken us out to lunch. How do we use our culture so shallow, but how do we bring it into our nomenclature? He's invited us over for dinner. He's given us a feast. He's inviting us in. He's picking up the bill. He's our friend. That's why Paul says that Justification by faith has everything to do with what it means to be a friend of God. Isn't that so glorious? God, I know it sounds corny, God wants to be your friend. Make sure you put that in context, Robert. 
if you put it online. Because I'm referring to justification. I'm referring to God taking a people who are hostile to God, who are at enmity with God, who are unclean before God. And through Jesus Christ and the new covenant, making us amicable, making us friends of God, making us commune with God and righteous in the sight of God. The contrast could not be any greater. And next week, oh, next week, if we get to next week, although the media would make you think that the world's going to end by next week, but if we come back together next week, oh, we are going to explore the unspeakable blessings of the new covenant. Father, help us to understand, as Ephesians 1 says, Every spiritual blessing is in Him. Help us to understand that not a single good thing happens to us outside of Your Son, Jesus, that is of any eternal value. And Lord, help us to treasure. And the way that we treasure the new covenant is by faith. Help us not to waver this week or any other week. Help us not to contradict what this verse is telling us, that we have not come to a mountain blazing fire that can be touched, that we have not come back to a wilderness experience. But, oh God, help us not to contradict that but help us to live in the reality of what it means to come to Zion, to Jesus Christ, the mediator of a new covenant, and give us victory where presently we are experiencing defeat. Give us courage where presently we are experiencing timidity and fear. Give us holiness where presently we are experiencing sin and compromise and give us zeal where presently we are experiencing apathy. Father, this is the only true response to the glories of the new covenant. May you seal it to our heart in Jesus' name. Amen.